Thank you for listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast. I want to invite you to rate us, review us, and subscribe to the podcast. This way, every week when a new episode is available, it will show up immediately in your feed. Also, I would encourage you to get my book, Windows Into the Bible. Each chapter provides a case study into how you go about studying the Bible within its context. Again, helping you to understand the words of the Bible within the world of the Bible. Check it out, the Windows Into the Bible book. You can get it on Amazon. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and to subscribe to the podcast. You're listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. Reading the Bible with understanding requires reading the words of the Bible within the world of the Bible. This podcast engages the spatial, historical, cultural, and spiritual world of the Bible to help transform how you read and understand the Bible. Have questions or want to interact with Mark? Tweet us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. For more insights, information about the podcast, and bonus resources and notes for each episode, visit WITBpodcast.com. Now, let's get into today's episode. Do you ever feel confused when you read the Bible? Do you struggle to find meaning in what it is you're reading? Do you feel like you're missing something that the original author intended for you to get when you read a passage from the Bible? Would you like to become more confident in your ability to interpret and understand the Bible? I'm Mark Turnage, and this is the Windows into the Bible podcast. As we talk about on this podcast, gaining the ability to read the Bible with understanding is all about reading the biblical text within the framework of the biblical contexts. One of those biblical contexts is the historical context. And although the Bible is not a history book per se, it does contain people's reflections on and their interactions with their history, their time. And as such, it contains history. The Bible is a valid source for us to understand the ancient world. And one of the things that we even find in the pages of the Bible are the appearance of figures that we know from sources outside of the Bible. One of those is the Roman prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate. And today we want to spend some time looking at who was Pontius Pilate. Now, of course, we don't have a source that tells us Pilate's own version of events. So we're left to look at Pilate through the windows of the ancient sources that speak about him, and our primary sources are the Jewish writers Josephus and Philo of Alexandria. We also gain insight on Pilate from coins that he mints during his rule in Roman Judea, and then we also learn about Pilate 
from an inscription that was left and discovered in the harbor city of Caesarea on the Mediterranean Sea coast in the land of Israel. Both Josephus and the Roman author Cornelius Tacitus mention Jesus and his execution, his crucifixion, and both attribute that action to the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. Now, a question needs to briefly be addressed. How did Rome and Pilate come to Judea anyway? Let's mark out a very brief timeline. At the conclusion of the Hebrew Bible Old Testament, the land, the province of Yehud, as it was called, Judah, was part of the Persian Empire. In those two pages that separate the Hebrew Bible Old Testament from the New Testament and the Protestant Bible, several things take place. First of all, in the year 333 BC, a young Macedonian that history calls Alexander the Great, is going to conquer the Persian Empire and bring the land of Israel within the Macedonian Empire. Alexander dies 10 years later in 323 BC in Babylon. His kingdom is going to be divided among his generals. In the second century BC, a Jewish uprising led by a priestly family known as the Hasmoneans is going to gain a period of autonomous Jewish reign in the land of Israel for about 80 years, from 142 BC to 63 BC. And this is what we speak of as the Hasmonean dynasty. In 63, because of a civil war between two of the Hasmonean brothers, Rome, who had a relationship with this Hasmonean dynasty, is going to say, you know what? It is in our best imperial interests, although Rome was, of course, a republic still at this time. But our aspirations are best served if we take control a bit more overtly of the situation in the land of Israel. And that's exactly what they're going to do. In 63, the Roman general Pompey is going to roll into Jerusalem. He's going to try and continue to rule by allowing the Hasmoneans to remain in power as kind of Roman puppet kings, that doesn't really work. And so through a series of events, a Jew whose grandfather had converted to Judaism, he was an Idumean, by the name of Herod is going to come into power. And Herod's a fascinating figure, and we'll look at Herod on another podcast. Herod's going to remain in power till 4 BC. Of course, this is the Herod we read about in Matthew chapter 2 with the killing of the innocents. And Herod's kingdom is going to be divided by the emperor Augustus between Herod's three sons, all of whom would love the title king, all of whom would love the land allotment of their father, but none of them get it. And in the southern part of the country, the area of what is called Judea, which actually is made up of Samaria, Judea, and Idumea. Basically, it's the coastal area south of Mount Carmel, the central hill country down to the biblical Negev, which is the Arad Beersheba Basin. 
this land is going to be given to his son Archelaus, who you also encounter in Matthew chapter 2. This is the, the Herod that is in power when the Holy Family returns from Egypt. Now, Archelaus tries to be as brutal as his father, but he's dumber than his dad in terms of how he administers Rome's territory. So in the year AD 6, a Jewish delegation is going to go to Rome and say, listen, we want this bum out of here, and Rome is all too happy to oblige. And so Archelaus is exiled, and at this point, his territory is going to be brought under the direct rule of the Roman prefix. These are governors of the equestrian order. And the most famous, of course, is Pontius Pilate. That's how Pilate comes to power. That's how Rome gains direct control of Judea. If we take Josephus's timeline of the Roman prefix, the simple reading is that Pilate comes to power around AD 26. A number of scholars, though, question this date, and they actually think that his rule begins earlier. It's been suggested that there is perhaps a textual corruption of the numbers that Josephus offers, but the prefect who precedes Pilate is a guy by the name of Valerius Gratus. Now, Josephus doesn't say a lot about his rule. In fact, he says almost nothing other than the fact that he shows up and quickly in succession, he deposed several high priests, finally appointing Caiaphas. And yes, that's the Caiaphas we read about in the Gospels connecting to Jesus's crucifixion. At the same time, Josephus is going to spill more ink talking about the career of Pontius Pilate than he does really any other Roman prefect or eventually procurator. And it would seem that the amount of attention that he gives to Pilate is best explained that his tenure as prefect probably went longer than the other prefects. At the same time, Caiaphas also is going to serve in a long tenure as the high priest. And it was very common when a new governor came in that he would swap out who was high priest. And so it has been suggested that probably Pilate's tenure as governor began around the year AD 17 or 18, more or less around the same time that Caiaphas is put in the position of high priest. Now, the Roman emperor at the time is Tiberius, and he has a real penchant for leaving governors in power as long as he possibly can. So it would seem to be that probably Pilate's coming into power around the year AD 18, 19, maybe. When Pilate is eventually going to be removed from power, the Roman governor of Syria is also going to remove. Caiaphas. So, more or less, the 10 years of these two individuals overlap almost identically. Now, this explains a lot about what we see taking place between these two as it relates to the crucifixion of Jesus. It seems, and I do have to caveat it with it seems, that Pilate probably comes to power sometime 1718. 19, 
in the first century. And Caiaphas is right there around the year 18. And they're going to basically be in a relationship as Roman prefect and high priest of the Jerusalem temple in which they are going to support one another and protect each other's power and interests. Understand that the Roman governors are not going to live in Jerusalem. Now, when Herod was king, his primary palace was in Jerusalem. But the Roman governors are not going to live in Jerusalem. They're going to live at Caesarea, this harbor city that was built by Herod the Great on the Mediterranean Sea coast. Of course, the principal city of the province is Jerusalem. Jerusalem housed the Jewish temple, which was one of the wealthiest and largest sacred enclosures in the entire Roman Empire. Not only did Jews from all over the empire and outside the empire stream into Jerusalem for pilgrimage, but even non-Jews came to see this temple, and it brought a lot of money. When we think about the tenure of Pontius Pilate, he is clearly the political power broker, but so is Caiaphas. And one of the things that we find, and we're going to look at here momentarily, some passages from Philo of Alexandria and Josephus about Pilate. And what we're going to see is that Pilate served with a certain level of brutality. My late professor David Flusser said you could describe Pilate with the single word butcher. And so we want to look at this because, of course, that's not necessarily the picture we get when we read the gospel accounts. So let's look for a moment at what these ancient historians, Philo of Alexandria and Josephus, have to say about the Roman prefect Pilate. Philo of Alexandria, in his work known as the Embassy to Gaius, this is Gaius Caligula, who is going to follow Tiberius as the emperor, is going to recount a situation during the tenure of Pilate. And he says this, One of Tiberius's lieutenants was Pilate, who was appointed to govern Judea. He, not so much to honor Tiberius, as to annoy the multitude, dedicated in Herod's palace in the holy city some shields coated with gold. And it's assumed that there would have been inscriptions on these shields as well. The Jews appealed to Pilate to redress this infringement of their traditions caused by the shields and not to disturb the customs, which throughout all the preceding ages had been safeguarded without disturbance by kings and by emperors. When he, Pilate, naturally inflexible, a blend of self-will and relentlessness, stubbornly refused, they clamored, do not arouse sedition, do not make war, do not destroy the peace. You do not honor the emperor by dishonoring ancient laws. Do not take Tiberius as your pretext for outraging the nation. He does not wish any of our customs to be overthrown. If you say that he does, produce yourself an order or a letter or something of the kind so that we may cease to pester you and having chosen our envoys may petition our Lord. It was this final point which particularly exasperated Pilate. For he feared that if they actually sent an embassy, they would also expose the rest of his conduct as governor by stating in full. Now, 
Philo is going to list Pilate's deadly sins. And here they are. Stating in full the briberies, the insults, the robberies, the outrages, and wanton injuries, the executions without trial constantly repeated. Please hear me. According to Roman law and also Jewish law, there is no trial of Jesus. The actions that Pilate takes against Jesus are perfectly in line with Philo's statement here of the execution without due process. The ceaseless and supremely grievous cruelty. So with all his vindictiveness and furious temper, he was in a difficult position. He had not the courage to take down what had been dedicated, nor did he wish to do anything which would please his subjects. At the same time, he knew full well the constant policy of Tiberius in these matters. The magnate saw this, and understanding that he had repented of his action but did not wish to appear penitent, sent letters of very earnest supplication to Tiberius. When he had read them, what language he used about Pilate, what threats he made, for he wrote to Pilate with a host of reproaches and rebukes for his audacious violation of the precedent and bade him at once take down the shields and have them transferred from the capital to Caesarea on the coast. Here we see this instance where Pilate is going to do something which, on the one hand, probably is motivated, as we will see, by an exaggerated devotion to the emperor. At the same time, it annoys his subjects. But there's also, when the Jews appeal to Pilate, they're going to threaten the potential for exposing his misadministration of the province. Josephus is going to tell a story also about Pilate. And some scholars wonder if the story that Josephus is going to tell is the same one that Philo was telling. It could be. I'm not sure that it is. But the point is, we will see how both writers are going to characterize Pilate. So here's Josephus's account. Now Pilate, the procurator of Judea, when he brought his army from Caesarea and removed it to winter quarters in Jerusalem, took a bold step in subversion of the Jewish practices by introducing into the city the busts of the emperor that were attached to the military standards. For our law forbids the making of images. So he's bringing in these military standards with the bust of the emperor into the holy city of Jerusalem. It was for this reason that the previous procurators, when they entered the city, used standards that had no such ornaments. Pilate was the first to bring the images into Jerusalem and set them up, doing it without the knowledge of the people, for he entered at night. But when the people discovered it, they went and thronged to Caesarea. Again, this is where he resided in the palace of Herod there, and for many days entreated him to take away the images. He refused to yield, very similar to what we saw with Philo's description of him, since to do so would be an outrage to the emperor. However, since they did not cease entreating him, on the sixth day, he secretly armed and placed his troops in position while he himself came to the speaker stand. This is probably in the stadium that has been excavated and that is in Caesarea today. This had been constructed in the stadium. There it is, which provided concealment for the army that lay in wait. When the Jews engaged, engaged in supplication, at a prearranged signal, he surrounded them with his soldiers and threatened to punish them at once with death if they did not put an end to their tumult. 
and return to their own places. But they, casting themselves prostrate and bearing their throats, declared that they had gladly welcomed death rather than make bold to transgress the wise provisions of the law. Pilate, astonished at the strength of their devotion to the law, straightway removed the images from Jerusalem and brought them back to Caesarea. Notice something here. Again, Pilate does something, possibly motivated by an exaggerated devotion to the emperor. At the same time, what he is going to do is he is going to be put in a situation where the resolve of the Jewish people is going to get him to capitulate to their desire. Josephus is going to tell another story. And this one relates to Pilate taking the sacred money from the temple treasury, what is called the korban. This is the money that is set aside for the sacrifices. And he's going to take it, according to Josephus, to build an aqueduct into Jerusalem. Let's read Josephus' account a moment. He, meaning Pilate, spent money from the sacred treasury in the construction of an aqueduct to bring water into Jerusalem. One thing to note is that some scholars have noted that from around the year 1718 of the first century until about 3132, that the lead content of the coins of Judea drops almost to nothing. And they're going to be replaced by a bronze alloy of tin and copper. Now, how does that relate? It has been suggested by the scholars that have noted this, that the reduction of the lead in the minting of the coins was actually for Pilate's project of building the aqueduct into Jerusalem, since you would use in the construction of the aqueduct lead for the fitting together of stones and, and, and the aqueduct piping and so forth. Could be. It's a very interesting suggestion. And if the suggestion is right, it further corroborates that Pilate probably comes into power around AD 17 or 18. Now let's go back to the text of Josephus. The Jews did not acquiesce in the operation that this involved, and tens of thousands of men assembled and cried out against him, bidding him to relinquish his promotion of such designs. Some too even hurled insults and abuse of the sort that a throng will commonly engage in. He thereupon ordered a large number of soldiers to be dressed in Jewish garments, under which they carried clubs, thus surrounding the Jews whom he ordered to withdraw. When the Jews were in full torrent of abuse, he gave his soldiers the prearranged signal, punishing alike both those who were rioting and those who were not. But the Jews showed no faint-heartedness, and so caught unarmed as they were, by men delivering a prepared attack, many of them actually were slain on the spot, while some withdrew disabled by blows. Thus ended the uprising. So understand, Pilate has taken the sacred money of the korban from the temple treasury, supposedly to build the aqueduct. Maybe yes, maybe no. I'm certain that some of that money probably lined his pockets. In this instance, instead of acquiescing to the demands of the Jews, he actually has his soldiers dress up as Jews with clubs and at the prearranged signal, unleash hell on them, killing many. 
Eventually, Josephus tells us that the reason why Pilate is going to be removed from power is because he is going to send his soldiers against a group of Samaritans that gather together on Mount Gerizim, and he is going to engage in wholesale slaughter of the Samaritans. Now, an interesting question, both in the story of the shields and the story of the standards bearing the emperor's image, and the story of the korban, is where are the priests in protesting Pilate's actions? We hear of the people protesting, but we don't hear of the priest there. Moreover, who gave Pilate access to the temple treasury? And as I said earlier, when Vitellus, the Roman governor of Syria, is going to remove Pilate as prefect and governor of Judea, he's also going to remove Caiaphas as high priest in Jerusalem. This is the image that is painted by both Philo and Josephus of Pontius Pilate. But Pilate leaves a few other fingerprints, and that comes to us through the coinage that he mints and through an inscription discovered in Caesarea. Let's start with the inscription. In the 1960s, while excavating the theater in Caesarea, an Italian team of archaeologists discovered an inscription. The inscription reads in Latin, A Tiberium, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has given or dedicates. Now, a lot of people, when this was discovered, they got excited because now all of a sudden we find Pontius Pilate in archaeology, and that's pretty, pretty important and pretty significant. Although, of course, we already know he exists both from our ancient sources like Philo and Josephus, Cornelius Tacitus, and the Gospels. But what has not been as carefully observed is the window that this inscription gives us into the psychology of Pontius Pilate. And this was first observed by my late professor, David Flusser. And Professor Flusser drew attention to the fact that the Tiberium mentioned here is probably a small temple built to the emperor Tiberius. Now understand that the cult of emperor worship was pretty new during the reign of Tiberius. Don't forget that the first emperor of Rome is Octavian Augustus. Before that, we have the Roman Republic. And the Roman author Suetonius even tells us about Tiberius that he questioned the cult of emperor worship. Now, Herod the Great, who was a client king of Rome, is going to build three temples, dedicating them to Augustus. Now, as a client king, Herod is permitted to do that. It's a sign of his loyalty and fidelity to Augustus. Augustus is alive. Within the cult of emperor worship, it's only upon the death of the emperor that he is being deified. The only place within ancient sources and archaeology that we find a Roman citizen, which is what Pontius Pilate was, dedicating a temple to a living emperor is the Tiberium mentioned in this inscription in Caesarea. So understand, Pilate is doing something that no Roman does. Moreover, he's doing it to an emperor that questions the cult of emperor worship. 
What does this tell us about the psychology of this individual? There's a certain need that Pilate seemingly has to ingratiate himself into the halls of power. Remember what we noted about the shields and the standards of the bearing the emperor's image. It may not be that Pilate was trying to provoke his subject so much, as much as he was simply trying to show his exaggerated devotion to the emperor. Now, if it happens along the way that he provokes them, okay, so be it. Flusser always noted that this exaggerated devotion that Pilate seemingly shows to Tiberius is something that would have made Stalin very proud to have that kind of devotion in the Soviet Union. The playground terminology for Pilate is simply he's a brown noser. He's a suck-up. He's that kid in elementary school who is always racing to the front of the line to hold the teacher's hand. And then he's tattling on everyone else in the class. He's the, he's the kid that at recess, you kind of tried to get outside of the eye shot of the teacher to give him a couple licks to try and straighten him out. Now, someone that has that need to ingratiate themselves to power oftentimes is covering up a certain level of psychological weakness. But when you put that person with such a mindset into a position of power, they oftentimes will respond with extreme brutality, which is exactly what we find Pilate doing. And now we come to the coins that Pilate has minted. And his coins bear up with the inscription showing and displaying an extreme exaggerated devotion to the emperor. On the coins of Pilate, he is going to mention, first of all, Tiberius Caesar. He is going to have Roman symbols, or I should say symbols of the Roman cult, which was absolutely unheard of for his predecessors as governors of Judea. And this is probably connected to the idea that Tiberius was the Pontifex Maximus, was the the head of the Roman cult. He is going to have symbols of wheat and even mention Julia of Caesar, that is the queen mother, Tiberius's mother. Livia. She gains the name Julia upon the death of Augustus in AD 14. And she's oftentimes connected with the goddess Ceres, the goddess of grain. Some of the coins will bear what was called a sempulum, which is like a ladle-shaped utensil that priests in Roman cults would use for tasting of wine before it's poured on the head of the sacrifices. Again, all of the images and symbols of these coins is connected to celebrating Tiberius as the head of the Roman imperial cult. Again, this exaggerated devotion, but what's more is it's showing and putting symbols connected to Roman pagan cults where previous 
Roman governors of Judea and even subsequent Roman governors of Judea are going to avoid such provocative symbols. So on the one hand, we find this psychological weakness in the character of Pilate, this exaggerated devotion to the emperor that at times he's going to cover up with an extreme brutality as a butcher. We see him being directed at times by the desires of his Jewish subjects. Other times he's going to respond to them in a very brutal way. And one of the challenges has been when people read Philo and Josephus and then read the presentation of Pilate in the Gospels, there seems to be a disconnect. And it's actually around this inscription at Caesarea and the coins of Pilate that we begin to see the bridge between this apparent disconnect. Remember the statement of the chief priests, Caiaphas and his cronies, to Pilate. If you do not crucify this man, you are no friend of Caesar's. They know the button to push with Pilate. They know that more than anything, he wants to be the friend of Caesar. Now, some scholars have suggested the reason for this is not purely a psychological weakness, but during the reign of Caesar, one of Caesar's lieutenants, a second in command by the name of Sejanus, is basically going to take over power and be brutal, and Tiberius is going to abdicate and go off to his palace on the Isle of Capri and Sejanus is simply a, a sociopath. And so some have suggested that Pilate's exaggerated devotion is ultimately going to be in, in response to the putting down of Sejanus's tenure, which ultimately Tiberius is going to have to do. It could be. But nevertheless, this is an individual who is going to do everything he can to show his devotion to the emperor. And the chief priests know that. And they're going to push his butt to make what they want happen, which is the crucifixion of Jesus. We don't have time today to get into that situation. But even there, when we look at this negotiation between the chief priests, between Caiaphas and Pilate over Jesus and Barabbas, we need to understand that even here, Pilate's brutal tendencies are fresh under the surface. When we go to looking within the context of history at Pontius Pilate, we actually find a very interesting character. We find a character that is much more three-dimensional when we look at him through the writings of Philo and Josephus, the coins that he mints, the inscription at Caesarea. And that three-dimensional figure actually helps us to better understand his appearance in the Gospels as it relates to the crucifixion of Jesus. As we look to understand the historical context of the Bible, we are going to be led to explore the sources and the world outside of the text of the Bible, but that world is going to help us to understand the Bible. This is the Windows into the Bible podcast. I'm Mark Turnage. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.
You've been listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. If you have questions related to this episode, tweet them to us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. You can also find resources related to this and other episodes at WITBpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.